Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley from the Thread Bible Podcast. Do you ever feel alone in your quest to seriously line up your life with God? Well, today we'll meet a man who literally was the only one in his generation who was walking with the Lord. Come join us as we explore the life of Noah, the only righteous man in his generation. Stay tuned. Welcome to Thread, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life through verse-by-verse study of the Bible. In season four, we're exploring the bedrock of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 through 12. Season four of the Thread Bible Podcast is brought to you by MediaLiteOnline.com. And MediaLite is offering its most popular course now for free. Deepen your ability to communicate hope to others and learn to unlock the creative potential buried within your mobile device. We'll teach you how to use social media to spread the gospel without sounding preachy or self-righteous. You can speak for God, even if you don't see yourself as a Bible teacher. All this available for free at MediaLiteOnline.com. All right, we're back. And we're back to discuss in this episode, The Calling of Noah. Uh, We're about to enter the story of Noah, and I want to point out a few things before we do. First of all, uh, although we're about to read a lot about Noah, these four chapters, Genesis 6 through 9, are not a revelation about Noah, but a revelation about Yahweh and his relationship toward humans and the earth. In this story, this engagement with Noah, God reveals his heart and his will to all of us. And the second thing I want to point out is that when we reach Genesis chapter 6, we enter a major break in the narrative of the Bible story, especially these foundational uh, chapters of Genesis 1 through 12. Once you hit chapter 6, we are passing into a new phase in God's relationship toward humans, and we'll encounter a new word for the very first time, and that word is covenant. Covenant will become the new basis for God's future relationship with humans and with all other life on the planet. So that's where we're headed, and let's jump right in. Let's start in verse 9. In most Bibles, there's a heading at the top of verse 9, and you might have noticed this same kind of heading twice already, and it reads like this. These are the generations of Noah, and that's like a header. Uh, We've seen a formula like this in Genesis 2, verse 4 where it says, these are the generations of the earth. And Genesis 5, verse 1, these are the generations of Adam. But it's a little bit different because these two times use a different word, toldot, which you will see throughout. You'll see this formula. Uh, It's about the offspring of the one being written about because God said when he created the world, be fruitful and multiply. So these are the headings used either to open or close the discussion of a particular person 
in the book of Genesis to show how or what they multiplied. Since God said, be fruitful and multiply, this is a way of showing what they did with that. What did they multiply in their lifetime? But in Noah's case, it's a different word, dorot, not toledot. And so it's not about what Noah multiplied. It's about the, it's a discussion about the kind of people who were in Noah's generation. Who were the kind of people, what was the kind of people generated in Noah's era? Especially, what was the posture of that generation toward their creator? and toward living under authority from the Creator. And what we're going to learn about Noah in verse 9 is that he isn't like the people of his generation. He's unique. He is unique in a number of ways. First, we're told he is right with God. He was a righteous man, a man who is right. Uh, a man who is, other translations say, blameless. Uh, And he was, that same word blameless, he was perfect. But notice how it is said. He was perfect compared to his generation. He was perfect in his generation. And this, you know, gives us a context by which to judge who is perfect. Not that he's absolutely perfect, but he's perfect compared with everyone around him. I mean, he's perfect compared to the entire social world in which he was embedded. And the word perfect, that's an interesting word too. It means completely integrated. And that's a way of saying that Noah's inside and his outside lined up. You know, a lot of people would say they believe something inside. Well, I guess this is all of us. And yet your outside does not necessarily match it. But Noah's inside and outside, they were, as far as God's concerned, they were in alignment. He had a value system, a value system about Yahweh. And that value system lined him up. You know, throughout the Bible, and I've said this before, but I really want, it helped me uh, to understand what God is looking for. And the main thing that God seems to be looking for throughout the Bible isn't moral perfection. We can't, we learn that we can't gain a relationship with him through our moral perfection. On the other side, we also happily learn that we will not lose our relationship with him due to moral imperfection. There may be huge consequences, to our morally imperfect choices, but one of those consequences is not losing your relationship with the Creator. Now, we're going to learn later in this story that Noah is not a perfect man. He makes some really bad choices, and he is weak in some ways, but he is loyal. That's what God's looking for. Noah is loyal to the Creator, And that is what God seeks in humans. Noah is integrated. His loyalty produces a general pattern of obedience toward God. Noah has a restful submission underneath God's authority. The third thing we learn about Noah is 
with God Noah walked. That's how the, actually in the Hebrew, it's really an interesting sentence. It starts off with, with God, and then there's all of the words of the sentence, and the last two words are, Noah walked. Uh, and this is called fronting, because Hebrew is one of those languages, like Greek, where you can take a phrase or a word, and you can pull it completely out of the sequence, and you can stick it at the very beginning or at the very end of a sentence, and it it does not confuse the sentence. You still know what the sentence should read, you know, what the subject is, but it's a way of emphasizing something. And so here it says, you know, Noah is an integrated man, and with God, Noah walked. And it's this unusual structuring of the sentence to put a big spotlight on it. Noah walked with God. It's with God that Noah walked. The rest of his generation walked with each other, uh, but he walked with God. And, you know, where have we seen that phrase before? Well, we ran into it back in chapter 5, verse 24. It said, Enoch walked with God and was no more, for God had taken him. So Noah also stood alone like Enoch. Noah stood alone in his generation, and he walked daily with God. His life was a journey with God. He enjoyed his fellowship. He enjoyed living under the authority of the Lord while the rest of society walked away from God or used their energy to work against God or filled the earth with violence, which we've already seen, with a violence that has created this rage that is overwhelming the entire planet. Noah was walking with God. He's so different from his generation. Now we go to verse 10, and it tells us we're in Genesis 6, verse 10, and it it lists off the physical descendants of Noah. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we'll see their, their lines later will become important, but they're not important now. They're just laid out there. Let's go to verse 11. And this profiles the kind of humans that were generated in Noah's lifetime on earth. We've already read a thorough description of the kind of people they were. In here in back in verse 5, it said, And Yahweh saw that the ra, the evil, the destructiveness, of man was great on the earth, and every forming into shape of the thoughts of his heart was only Ra, only evil, only destruction all day long. So that's the kind of people that the world was full of. Now look in verse 11. We're going to see the effects of these humans on the planet. But To really get the impact of what God is about to say about humans and what they've done to the earth by Noah's day. Let's go back. Let's go back to chapter 1 for just a minute. It's the best chapter of all. It's my favorite chapter of the whole Bible. Uh, It's definitely my favorite chapter in Genesis 1 through 12 because, you know, this is the, the chapter where we get the, nothing is here yet. It's just the creator and his dream. He's got a dream for a world, and he creates this world. First, he fights back the powers of darkness, 
and the chaotic abyss, the deep, and he creates light and land and animal creatures, and he shares his breath with them. He creates the planet. He gives them the breath of life, his own breath. And he fights back tohu vabohu, that power that wants to destroy everything that is created and break it down and make it go back to nothingness. And he fights that. And he establishes his firmament around the earth. And it's there to protect all of the life. So life here can flourish. And when God is finished creating, he looks at all the life forms and the beauty of the planet and the way the integrated systems all work so well. And he judges his own work. In chapter 1, verse 31, he says this, God saw everything he had made. And lo, it was very good. It was very tov. It was uh, life-giving, positive, productive. It's all of that. And then he turns everything over to his co-regent humans with the command to join the animals and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with good things. And now, 1,700 years later, in chapter 6, verse 11, let's look at what humans have done with God's very good earth. This is what the Lord says about it in verse 11. Now the earth was ruined before God, and the earth was filled with violence because of them. And God saw, it's the same phrase as in chapter 1, God saw the earth he had created. Now look, God saw, he's looking at the earth humans have managed for 1,700 years. God saw the earth and lo, it was ruined. For all flesh had ruined its way upon the earth. Ruined. This, this passage uses that word four times. Here's another note on translation that's really important because modern translations see the repetition of the same word ruined as a problem. And so they go to the thesaurus and they give bored modern readers some variety. And instead of ruined, they'll say corrupt or defiled, you know, and so by doing this, yes, we get more variety, but you miss the important point that's being made because there is a point being made about the consistency of God's justice because chapter 6 is about justice. It's about the day of judgment because, yes, we get free will, but there is a day in all of our lives, my life, will we'll come to this day, and so will yours, where we will be judged for our free will, for how we use this God-like power. Ruined. The word ruined is the crime. They have taken the very good, virgin creation that God has gifted to them, and they have ruined all of it. I looked up ruined in the dictionary. It means 
irreparably damaged and made useless. You know, it had to be useful to be ruined. And then you have to do something to it. And the thing you do has to be so drastic that it can't be fixed anymore. It isn't just damaged. It's irreparably damaged. You can't undamage it. You can't heal it. It has now been made useless. You know, the word God uh, judges with is not the word they have soiled it or they got it dirty or, you know, they... They bruised it. It isn't what he said. He said, they ruined all of it. They have ruined all of it. Think about it. Noah's is the generation that is unified in using their own immense giftedness and their authority as God's co-regents on earth to vandalize and to wound creation until it is now irreparably damaged. It can't be repaired. It is made useless. Repeatedly, God keeps saying this. They have filled it with violence. You know, filled means there's no room for anything else. The earth is now full. It is full of violence. Some translations use the word outrage. Like there's a rage that is out on the earth. It is boiling everywhere at the hands of a toxic generation that has finished now the defilement that other humans started centuries before and 1,700 years of relentlessly toxic human presence has completely ruined the good earth. There is no safe place left where life can flourish unmolested. Ruined. Ruined is the crime, and ruined is the punishment also. That's why it's so important to leave this word alone. The Creator says they have ruined the entire earth, and I will now ruin them. I will ruin those who have ruined the earth. Have you ever seen roadkill rotting and decomposing along the side of a roadway? I mean, that's, that's what final ruin looks like for a living creature. And that's what final ruin looks like for the human race of Noah's day. We'll be right back. this little word. I want you to look again through the text of chapter 6 for that little word, low, which many translations, again, simply just leave it out. And that's a pity because it's a really important syntactic operator. That's what it's called. And I hope you'll always notice it from now on. It has a, a really important function. Low is a call to a spectator a valued spectator, to come align their perspective with yours. It means, come come stand behind me. Look over my shoulder 
and see what I am seeing from my point of view. Come take on my perspective. You know how often in the Bible the Creator calls, not to everybody, but usually to His chosen children, and He invites them to come take on His perspective so they can see things accurately and so they can have an understanding of what is really happening on the earth. In Genesis 1.31, that was that beautiful verse that we went to, God says, Lo, the earth is very tov. You know, lo, come, come see it from my perspective. Come see it as the one who had the original vision. Come feel my joy that I've been able to make the reality match my dreams of how it might be low. The earth is very good. It's very beautiful. It's very life-giving. It's very tov. Come, stand by me and look. Now, we're back in chapter 6, verse 11. God says, lo, the earth is all ruined, completely useless. Come see what I see. And so they do. You know, come see this from my, come see this disaster from my perspective. Completely ruined and cannot be fixed. And now we come down to a verse, verse 13, where it's an interesting construction. God says, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has presented itself before me. The end of all flesh has presented itself before me. I want you to put that in quotes. The end of all flesh. Because the way this is structured treats it like, um, like it's a policy folder that has worked its way through the official channels of government, rising slowly until it it needs to be brought now before the great king for his final signature so it can become enacted as law and the wheels of government will make it happen. God says this, this policy, the end of all flesh, has presented itself now before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. It's like, um, it's like the fear that so many computer scientists have with artificial intelligence and with self-learning computers, you know, because they're going to come to a point where the machines can create more machines like themselves without us and a point where their intelligence surpasses our intelligence. And we already know what the machines will finally realize that the problem of this planet, I mean, the one thing that causes crime and injustice and pollution and the rape of the environment, the ruining of this amazing, wonderful planet, the only place we have ever found life and where life at any level can survive in the universe as far as we know. It's the only place, and the central problem for our entire planet and for all the life forms on this planet is clearly 
the human race. God says, the end of all flesh has presented itself before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. Lo, he invites Noah to come stand with him. See this situation from his perspective as the creator of this world and as its king. In verse 17, he says, lo, you know, come stand, stand right where I'm at. Look at what I see. Lo, I myself am bringing the flood waters over the earth to ruin all flesh in which there is the spirit of life under heavens. All that is on the earth shall release its breath. You know, we're the highest form of life, and yet we are the murderers. We are the human traffickers. We are the rapists. We are the violent. We are the lazy. We are the drunken. We are the corrupt. It's the humans, not the cockroaches. They eat the garbage we throw out. It's the humans. God made us, but when he made us, he made us without breath. We are born without breath. And then he loans us his own breath. This is his way of seeing it. I loan you my life spirit and you... Breathe it in. It's the first thing you do when you come out of the womb. And you breathe it in and out, day and night, always one breath. Just one breath away from death. Because the Creator is sustaining our life, giving us the chance to use our free will to bless the earth. And now the earth is ruined. It is irreparably damaged and made useless. I want to read you a quote from Jordan Peterson. He has a lot of really good insights, I think. This is what I heard him say. I do believe that the most appropriate way to conceptualize the nature of human experience is as a battle between good and evil. I believe the fundamental doctrine that each individual is a center of creation. I believe that to be literally and metaphorically true, and I also believe that each of us participate in the process of transforming what could be into what is, in that we do it as a consequence of our own ethical actions, and that we shape the world as a consequence of that. I see a deep malevolence and bitterness in the human, dark and terrible. And yet, I believe there is a light at the bottom of it. You know, why do we study Genesis 1 through 12? We're studying it because the creation story is told as a way of describing our own individual experience in this life. You know, the creation story reminds us of the consequences of choosing to rebel against the creator God rather than to flow with him in what he is doing on the earth. Our choices have consequence. We are shaping this world by our actions. You know, in the story of Noah, the chapter of Noah, it's a big deal. 
Noah's is the story about justice and grace and the importance of obedience from those who have been shown grace. With Noah in chapter 6 and in chapter 9, and then even more with Abraham in chapter 12 and chapter 15, God lays a foundation of a new concept, the concept of covenant, as his new fundamental way of relating to individual humans after the flood. Now, back to our story. The great king has been watching the slow procession of this decision, this case document, as it moves through his government toward him, toward his throne. All the other alternatives have been exhausted. He has been trying to avoid this action. The great global reset, the end of all material life, anything that breathes the breath of life. And twice in this passage, he gives his reasoning that the reason he has to do this is because the earth is now full. It is filled, not with life, not with fruit. That's what he commanded. It is filled with violence because of them. Humans are the ruiners of earth, and the situation is now beyond repair. The king must act, and yet grace It's always crying out in his heart. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So look at verse 18. He says, I will wipe them from the earth, but I will set up my covenant with you. Covenant. There's that word again. What's a covenant? It's an agreement between kings. It's an alliance. It's a pact. It's a pledge of friendship. It's a pledge of covenant loyalty forever. Yahweh is the great king over all, but he has raised man to be king with him over the earth. We've been given dominion, and God treats Noah, and God treats Abraham as kings. Man, talk about grace. And what we start to see in the scripture now is God dealing with humans one by one, making covenant, entering into covenants, alliances between kings, pledges of friendship between kings. Uh, I, I had somebody explain to me who's, who has studied covenant, ancient covenant rituals, and he called it cutting covenant because there there has to be bloodshed to seal a human covenant, covenant between human kings. And um, it makes you partners in a way that a contract does not. You become bound like a, I guess the only thing that we usually use the word covenant for in a normal human life these days is marriage. You know, you swear an oath, of like a, it isn't a blood oath, but you're swearing an oath in front of the close, you know, that's why there's a wedding list, not the whole world comes. They're supposed to be the people you value the most, your inner circle of your social circle. They will be there to watch you swear 
this promise. And I change the marriage vows when I was when I do a a wedding ceremony, I strip out all the the fancy talk and I make it really really plain. You are swearing till the end of your life that you will be sexually faithful to your partner. You are swearing that in front of all of us and we are here to hold you to that promise. You are swearing that you will bring your best self to them. You will be loyal to them in good times and bad times. You will put them above all other human relationships. Do you swear that in front of all of us? That's a wedding. And you can get rid of every other thing in the ceremony because the unity candle and all this other stuff that we've added, it's like, that's just confusing in a lot of ways. This vow is the heart of it. And if you keep this vow, this is where happiness comes from in life. And if you break this covenant vow, this is where all the pain comes from in life. And as God goes forward from this point on with Noah, he does it on the basis of a covenant. And when you've entered into a covenant with a partner, this is not just another friendship. This is something at a whole intensely high level. You are loyal to each other. It means your debt is now my debt and my wealth is now your wealth. We share each other's riches. Your family is my family and my family is your family and your enemies, they are my enemies and my enemies they are your enemies. We defend each other to the death. And man, when you think about uh, being able to enter into a relationship with Jehovah God at that level, that he's not seeing us as creatures. He's not seeing us as, you know, the human race. He's seeing just Noah. He's, he sees the human race and he's dealing with the human race. Injustice and judgment because of what they've done to him and what they've done to the entire creation and all other forms of life. But he found a man that he can go into covenant with, Noah. And so he does. It's beautiful. And the thing about covenant that's so beautiful also is that God's covenant with Noah brings salvation to his family. It's a doorway. It's like this wide open gate. It's their ticket to survival when God brings the flood, he has covenant not with every one of them. He's got a covenant with Noah. But because of Noah, the door is open for all of them. They get to enter also. They're available. God wants covenant. He wants to make covenant with each of us. And this covenant with Noah opens a door for a covenant with everybody that's connected to him. He becomes a gateway. It's a beautiful idea. And so God now in this passage turns to Noah to tell him to get prepared. And this is the longest speech in the book of Genesis so far. It is God's unbroken monologue, mainly because he's, he's going to give a lot of detail about how to prepare this new item because of his covenant. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And because of that, you've got to make something. It's something you've never seen before, probably. And it's, it's a word that, it's a strange word. Make yourself an ark. I mean, how many times have you used the word ark? Well, even in the Bible, 
it's used now, Noah, go make one. And then it's used for Moses as a baby. His mother made an ark and put him in it and stuck him among the crocodiles on the, in the Nile River. And it's used of something that God tells Moses to make an ark. And we'll, we'll talk about all this again in just a minute. Make for yourself an ark, an ark of cypress wood or an ark of gopher wood and pitch her with pitch with nests will you make the ark some translators change nests to rooms but when you do that you miss the coziness i mean think about a nest the ark was salvation it was to be filled with nests big ones small ones for all the life forms on earth ark it's a new word And we're not told what it is, but the creator describes it in detail. And this ark thing is the biggest thing Noah has ever seen. I mean, it's it's humongous. It took him a hundred years to build it. It was so large. The ark. Verse 19. The ark is a mobile garden of Eden. It's a God-given sanctuary where no one can do you harm. It's a sacred place where man and animals are safe. And God told Noah, build an ark. And Noah's mother built, I'm sorry, Moses' mother built an ark, a safe place, and put Moses in it in the Nile River, such a dangerous place, such a dangerous thing to do. And in the centerpiece of the temple, God tells Moses, as he grows up, build another one. Build an ark, and in the ark, we're going to hold the covenant. The covenant I'm going to make with the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the family, one family, Abraham's family. And it will be the centerpiece of the temple, the ark, the sanctuary, the place, the mobile garden of Eden. You know, arks are always mobile. They're gardens, little Garden of Eden replicas where no one can do you harm because it's God's sacred space. Humans and animals are safe there. You got to read this back in Genesis chapter 1 because Noah is another Adam figure. Noah here in this story, he's going to You know, God's going to deal with him again. He's going to have an agreement with him again, just like with the first Adam. And Noah, just like the first Adam, is going to exercise his dominion over the animals. And he's going to do that for their common good. And all the animals are going to be under Noah's dominion. And we'll see a repeat in creation language. When God tells Noah, like here in uh, verse 20, he talks about, things that fly and things that dart and things that go on the ground. You know, it's a repeat of that Genesis 1 language. And he says, go gather. They'll come to you now and go gather all these things that were so important to me in creation. And verse 21, be sure you bring food for everyone and be sure you bring extra animals from those species designated as clean for making sacrifices because we need to make a covenant and for a covenant there must be blood. 
And this is God's preparation, beginning to to sow seeds in the minds of humans about a special blood that must be shed. And that's going to lead us ultimately right to Jesus. And we come to the end of chapter 6, the preparation for the flood. And we're in verse 22, the last verse of the chapter. Such an important chapter. And yet it ends on an awkward sentence. Two sentences, actually. And this is what it says. So Noah did, period. According to all that God commanded him, so he did, period. Many translators, even in ancient times, just delete one of the so Noah dids. And then that makes the sentence neater. But John Bunyan, the one who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress in the mid-1600s, he made a comment that in modern English was something like, leave it alone. You know, the Holy Spirit is willing to create awkward prose to show his delight in Noah's obedience. So we leave it the way it was. So Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. You know, this is placed at the end for emphasis. It's repeated twice for emphasis because Noah proved himself to be a man of complete and decisive obedience in a backslidden and wicked generation. He stood alone. He had no one to encourage him. And yet what God commanded, Noah did. You know how different he was from his perverse generation. And because of that, he is the one person standing in the entire world from the human race with whom God is willing to enter into covenant. Friend, you and I may very well be living in another terminal generation. And we are called to shine as lights in this dark world. Like Noah, we may find ourselves alone in our commitment to Yahweh. And when we refuse to join the ways of the world or to pledge allegiance to the new world order that is coming, this may lead to pressure against us, Jesus said so, even persecution. But we must stand firm. Can you imagine the pressure and the mocking that Noah endured for a hundred years as he built the ark? And yet... He stood firm, and like him, we must stand firm. Jesus said in Luke 17, 26, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Talking about coming back in power when Jesus returns. The Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, and may that be said of all of our lives. Well, that's all for now. My friend, expect God to use you today because you are the light of the world.